Hello and welcome back to the Shale Solutions podcast where we explore different industries, leadership, principles, and continuous improvement. Today I bring to you my conversation with Charlie Chester. He's a team leader with Midwest Family Lending. So the primary subject today is talking about mortgages, how you can use those, just kind of the ins and outs. We also touch on personal credit quite a bit. And I'm excited to bring this episode out, one, because it'll give you a look into what it's like to work in a certain industry, uh, the kind of things that you'll deal with. But also, I think this is a very important topic. I really hope anybody that's listening that's maybe younger or hasn't purchased a house yet listens to this podcast because I really tried to lead the questions in a way that would really help someone understand the process of getting a mortgage, that kind of loan, what routes you can do to get there, what are the best ways, how to be realistic about it. Um, And then we also dive into some of the options for leveraging that towards building up funds to modify your home, improve its value. So ultimately, I'd like to think this is a very valuable conversation to put out into the world since, you know, that's not something they teach in school. They don't teach you how to get a mortgage what the best ins and outs are, how to buy that first house, or maybe if it's not even your first house, what are the options, the best way you can do things, what are things to avoid. So with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and we'll get right into it. Recording. I love this thing, it's just plug and play, solved all my problems. That is awesome. Alright, so I'll get my awkward intro out of the way. All right, joining us today is Charlie Chester, the fearless leader of Team Chester with Midwest Family Lending. He's also a father and enthusiast of colorful pants. How are we doing today? Not too bad. I love that description. (laughs) All right, so what exactly is it that you do here at Midwest Family Lending? You bet. Well, Austin, really what we do technically is the mortgage. Um, But what most people don't realize, there's so many pieces that go into that. So budget and credit, preferences... Sometimes there's limitations just based on everybody's situation. So we look more at everyone's financial picture and make sure that what they think they're getting or what they want to get actually happens or show them how it needs to happen. Uh, Most things you see advertised aren't eligible for all people. So just want to make sure what people want and show them how to get there. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those, uh, what are some of those most common shortfalls or things people don't see coming that you come across? You bet. So on anything big, when it comes to finances, um, you know, there's just a lot of pieces like doing your taxes. Everybody thinks filing taxes is easy. And when you have a single job and you file tax return, and that's really all you have is that W-2, it is pretty easy. It's pretty cut and dry. Um, Once you start having kids or you own a home or you've got student loan interest deductions or you have your own business, every time you add a piece to the puzzle, then there's different answers depending on what the question was or the proposed um, methodology is to run your business or how many kids you have. The same thing goes into mortgage or any type of lending, but mortgage especially because it's so very government regulated. Your credit score, your income, your debts, and not just the credit score, but the details that are in credit, you know, bankruptcies, foreclosures, you know, do you have maybe an old repossession from a long time ago? all those pieces come into play. So it's making sure you know what the right answer is based on those details, not just the quick click me, buy me. Uh, you know, it's not like going on Amazon. You know, I like that pair of shoes. You get it. You don't like it. You send it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get the mortgage, it's expensive to get. 
and it's expensive to touch again. So you don't want to refinance it or have issues with it down the road. So getting the right answers with all the pieces so people can understand what the rules are makes a lot less stress and typically better results. Okay. Um, Let's say so for somebody like me who's never dealt with mortgages, hasn't yet looked at uh, considering buying a home for themselves, uh, what, what does that process look like and where do you get started if you're looking to, to get a mortgage for the first time? Yeah, a lot of people <clears throat> think about the house first, so they might have the cart ahead of the horse a little bit. Um, you know, you see something you want to buy and it's like, okay, I want to buy it and now I'll look at how I'm going to get the money. It's a little more reactive at that point because really what you have is what you have. You don't have time to fix or change or modify or really learn and understand what's there. So I like to tell people, if you can start six months or even a year in advance, you don't have to go you know, hog wild and get lots of details, but you can start to get comfortable. So if you start out a ways, especially if you're self-employed, lots of ways mm-hmm. you can take and make sure you have your accounting right and things like that. But even just W-2 employees, making sure you know how do you prep your budget, because if you rent for a thousand bucks and the house you want is $1,200 a month, do you cut back on the house and buy what you don't want, or do you find a way to modify the budget and save some more, or just make sure you're comfortable with 1200 so you can pull the trigger just as soon as possible? Um, so really getting with somebody that can look from the outside in, and that's mm-hmm. that's a big one. I mean, we, we all try to do things ourselves, but you only know what you know, and there's other ways of doing things, and sometimes it's just a technicality. Other times it's you didn't know you could have your auto loan done differently, or you could have your student loans treated differently with a different type of payment plan for income-based or deferred. Um, There's so many details with each of those pieces. A lot of it's just education. So starting six months to 12 months early, you can learn one or two things and then progress on, and it's not an overload of information. Versus Mm. when you apply for a loan and everybody starts throwing terms at you and all these things you gotta gather, you just wanted to buy the house, now you're frustrated and overwhelmed. If we do the numbers early, you take that overwhelm out and the education's a lot easier because you can take a little piece at a time and get comfortable. And if you need to change your habits to get what you want, then you have time to do it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so say people aren't in the position they want, but they're close. What are some of those habits like you just mentioned that you typically see that you bet. can make a big, uh, big difference? Yeah, one of the biggest ones is most of us don't do our budget. And so not that you have to have a budget sheet and check things off and add some track for balancing your checkbook with technology anymore. We don't do that. You look at your ATM receipt, you look at your mm-hmm. online banking. So you don't truly budget, but if you can find a way that you can monitor your spending at least a little bit, there's a lot of apps that'll let you do it. Um, quite honestly, I'm a big proponent of credit cards versus debit cards. Debit cards can cause overdrafts and it's just a lot in your account. And if you get into a bad rut, you know, the dollar fifty charge could get you 30 bucks in overdrafts. It's also to where they don't categorize types of expenses on debit cards. And the security is different on, on debit. You have to ask for your money back if you have someone mm-hmm. kind of invade your account. Credit cards can be bad for people who are tempted to spend, so we got to be careful. But if you're not tempted to spend and you're really buying stuff you would have bought with your debit card anyway, then it's the exact same thing. But the protection's a little better because if you do get a fraudulent charge, you call them and they flag it. You don't have to pay the bill on it while it's being checked out. Yep. Um, but they also categorize it and say, hey, here's how much you spent on services. Here's how much you spent on out to eat. Here's how much you spent on travel. So if you're not good at budgeting, there's ways you can have different system pieces do it for you. And that way you can at least have summaries. 
Because, I mean, if you mm-hmm. think you spend 200 bucks a month on going out to eat and you get your statement that says, hey, this month you spent 480 bucks going out to eat, and you go, oh, crap. <laughs> I, I'm more than double what I thought I was. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's so easy to swipe. And so we're busy lives. Try to make it to where it's as painless as possible, but still be aware of what you're doing. So most people know what they make. They just don't know what they spend. Yep. And so those discretionary items... You didn't even realize your cell phone was costing you 300 bucks a month or your internet was costing you 200 bucks a month. You thought it was less. So the awareness is a big one. And mm-hmm. sometimes that just takes somebody else pointing it out and suggesting a different way to do it. But, I mean, debit cards are hard. I mean, it just drains your account. There's no, there's no app-friendly type of summary report uh, that you can click on and you know, give you a little bar graph or a pie chart of where you spend your money. Um, people think it's convenient, but it's it's tough to get an eight-page bank statement. You just look at it and go, yep, I spent a bunch of money this month. Mm-hmm. Um, the report's on a credit card. Plus, you get points on a credit card. It's just, if you're not spending money just because it's available, then a credit card can be very helpful in lots of little ways. Plus, they do help build your credit as well. So budgeting and knowing how to take and grow your credit, you know, improve your credit, anything, mm-hmm. it that doesn't happen fast. It takes months upon months to build credit and change habits. So if you if you migrate from a debit card to a credit card, it's not like you're going to do it overnight and then mm-hmm. see a difference. It, it can take probably 60, 90 days just to get used to something and and not be afraid of it. Because I mean, money scares almost everybody. Yeah. It's like I, I, I work hard for it. I know it goes away, but I just don't want to lose it. I mean, help, help me not lose any more than I have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so credit was definitely something I wanted to hit today because that's you know, something you're not taught in school, but it's such a big component yeah. of basically everybody's life now. And I know that one day in our networking group, you deep dived into that quite a bit. Um, so some of that stuff I'd really like to go over. So credit, I don't know, even even I honestly don't know, don't really under yeah know much about it. So what, what are kind of like just the basics to start? What does credit really, your credit score mean? Sure. Uh, and where it'll impact your life. This would be a good spot. So it, it used to be a different answer than it is now. I mean, now credit impacts getting a rental, getting a job. I mean, anytime you borrow money, it's going to impact. But there's a lot of places that aren't lending institutions that look at credit just to get a basis. Because what credit's trying to do is gauge risk. So there's no easy way. I mean, my, my dad was a banker back in small town Waukee back in the day when you met and we'd handshake and you got the loan. Mm. There was no real forms. You know, the bank had a note and the bank had a, an application so you'd fill out and sign it validating who you are. But it's very, very simple. Well, that's not that way anymore. So there's a lot of governmental laws put in place to protect consumers. So they mean well, but it makes for just a crap ton of paperwork. And the more paper there is, the less people read it. So that's where credit came into play. So you didn't have five different bankers looking at the same person and three of them approve that person, and two of them don't, and they all have their own special way of, are you okay for that loan? The government put things in place saying there's fair lending laws. If one person applies at five different banks, they should look at that person with the same standards as the next handful of customers. And there's no easy way to do that if you're all looking at debts and income and assets differently. So credit helped consolidate how do you look at debts. So credit doesn't show utilities and things like that. So your cell phone, 
your internet, your you know, water, sewer, electric, those are not on credit. Now you you can add them to it now, and that's the special boost you can do. I would tell you it's somewhat of a joke. But the true credit report is meant to show personal loans, personal lines of credit, credit cards, student loans, auto loans, mortgages, anything where you have signed an agreement with an institution, and therefore it's going to report every month consistently. Did you make the payment? Yes. What's the balance? What was the payment? Because there's all that history's in there. There's a lot. I mean, when you see a report, you see a summary, but you can expand that report into a lot more information on the lending and the underwriting side. So people can start to prove, yep, I pay my bill every month. Credit report shows that. There's no late payments. And a credit report versus your late payment on a late fee are two different things. So a late fee is you miss the due date from that credit card or auto loan. But a credit report late is you were 30 days past due. So you have the next bill due. You missed last month. This month is now due. You're an entire month behind. So a lot of people get confused with that, that they get down on themselves, they, they got a late fee. Well, that stinks. Try not to get those. They're expensive. Mm-hmm. But just because you got a late fee doesn't mean you're going to have a late on your credit report. So you just don't oh, want to. Okay. Yeah, you don't want to cycle an entire month. If you have next month's bill come and you still hadn't paid the previous month, now you're risking that late fee or the, the late on your credit report. Okay. So what are... I'll see. So that credit report or that number, uh, what are ways you can increase or maintain that easier? Yep. I know that's a big thing you talked about one time. It is. And so credit is designed, again, to show risk. And the best way to show that you're either a good risk or a bad risk is consistency. And you can be consistently good or consistently bad. And then there's everything in the middle. And so if you have one account showing on credit, like an auto loan, which a lot of people are afraid to get credit cards or other things, they just, oh, I got an auto loan, that's it. Well, you only have one item, and one item Mm -hmm. isn't a good history. I mean, it it is some history, but if you look at performance, it's just, it's a fixed loan for a fixed amount of time, that's all you got. You can't draw more money on it, so you just have to make payments. What they want to see is variety and quantity. So if you have two or three loans and two, three, four, five credit cards, again, we don't, credit doesn't require that you have debt. Credit just requires that you have open and available access to money. So if you Mm -hmm. have, let's just be crazy. Let's say you got 40 credit cards. Some people are like, oh my God, you're debt. Well, no, not necessarily. I personally have 14 cards. I don't have debt on any of them. I use one card, but we pay off every month. You know, I signed up for Shields to get 50 bucks off. Some people, that's a really bad idea because they're going to use that limit to buy all the stuff they can, and now mm-hmm. they can't pay the bill or pay it in full. So you're going to pay a lot of interest because rates are not cheap on credit cards. But if you have the account, and when I do go to Shields, I just use that credit card to get my discount, and I pay the bill. You can show that habit of, I have access to the limit they gave me, and I didn't use it these three months. Oh, by the way, I did buy a couple new golf clubs, and then I paid the bill. So that history in the credit card, credit report shows you've had it for X number of months or years. You have access to X amount of dollars, and it shows you used it, you didn't use it. You paid the bill, oh, you paid three months to pay it off, or you paid it in full. It shows that history, but if you're making on-time payments, then it shows that, again, consistency that you've got a liability that you have to make the payments on, you have to be responsible, and you have to be responsible not to use all the money if you can't pay it back. That's a great card. It also builds your credit if you have 
same thing. I bought one thing at Shields and I didn't use it for three years. Now they might close the account on you because you're not using it. They want mm -hmm. to make money off you. But I had it open for three years. I never missed a payment because I never had a payment due. That still builds your credit because it shows you had access to money and it wasn't tempting you to spend. And it actually counts as an on-time payment even though it was no payment due. Mm -hmm. Because a no missed payment is what they're um, keeping track of. Not necessarily that you made your payment. It's that you didn't miss one. So they're keeping track of the negative and the opposite of a negative. So no balance equals on time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you get the benefit of the doubt on there. So the more data you have, then it builds that consistency. You know, I've got two or three credit cards. I use them when I need them. I pay them consistently. I don't leave a balance unless I have an emergency and I had to. And that's a good benefit of a credit card. I mean, if you don't have mm -hmm. the money and you got to get a tire, get the tire. I mean, if it takes you a few months to pay it off, okay, that's that's fine. Ideally, you can pay it off just as quick as you can to save yourself interest. But not having cash to cover an emergency, that's what credit cards are for. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you just try to minimize that. Um, the variety and the quantity is the other thing. So, I mean, having that auto loan, which is fixed term, the credit card is an open line. Those two things are treated very differently. So the more you can have of those, you know, most people have a student loan. I would encourage those to be in repayment because whenever they're deferred, you, you, they basically don't count towards your credit because they're kind of inactive. Um, okay. Income-based repayments are very, very minimal. So, I mean, if you qualify for a zero, ask me if you can just pay five bucks. If you can afford five bucks, now you have that account open active and you're making five oh, bucks a month okay so you're basically buying your credit score you're saving a little bit of interest because you're making payments but again you have an active account versus kind of an inactive dormant account that's in deferment so student loans a big one that not a big deal to make small payments on auto loans of course you make your payments and then credit cards keep as many as don't stress you out have a regular card that you can use for gas and groceries if they make you nervous just use it for that typically mm -hmm. people don't buy stuff yeah, that's they, how I started uh, mm -hmm. transitioning over to college. We got one. I just, yeah, gas was, I think, the main thing I used. And then eventually that's uh, whenever I do something online, I always try to use a credit card for that added security, things like that. Yeah, there's, again, and that, we've covered a lot already, and it's, it's hard to keep mm -hmm. track. But everybody just has to get more accustomed to what are they comfortable with. Yep. And that level of comfort is typically a moving target. Because if you've been burnt on a credit card, you really don't want to have one. Um, but they maybe didn't have anybody holding their hand, coaching them through and saying, hey, here's the wise way to do it. Here's the things not to do. And if you have that coach, which is what we end up being for a lot of people, almost everybody, that's the goal. It's like, just ask mm -hmm. questions. Then we can take and feather in, all right, here, here's the first thing you should do that's going to help. It's not like you want to get a list of 15 things to do. Nobody's going to do 15. It's like, here's, here's one, maybe two go do that this month. And then how's that going? You know, we can get in next topic, I think is always a challenging one is monitoring your credit. It's really important to monitor, but people take those monitoring sites like Credit Karma, CreditWise, all the institutions that give you access to your credit. It's not truly your credit score. It's that model. And there's lots of different models. That's okay. kind of like when you go shopping for a truck, you know, you can get big truck, small truck, Chevy, Ford, GMC, they're, yep. they're all trucks, but they're not the same. And credit's the same way, so there's lots of different versions. You've got you know, 1.0, 2.0, you got upgrade up to version 2.1. Each type of institution, auto lenders, mortgage lenders, um, credit cards, 
they can pick and choose which model they use. So you have to make sure that you're using the right version when you look at that credit. And so most of the generic versions are the ones that give the highest score, but most lenders don't use those versions because they're new and kind of shiny and not proven yet. Uh, okay. So the, the rule of thumb we give everybody is if you see a 700 score on what you monitor, your mortgage score is probably going to be more around 670, 680. But that's not a you know hard and fast. The more data you have, the more accurate it is. The less data you have on there, it can be a much more wild swing. Mm -hmm. So it's a good benchmark, but you have to pair that with an actual lender report. So you can say, on this day, I pulled my credit karma and I pulled my lender report and you're 15 points apart and I can tell you why you're different. And as we go, then you know, if you see it go up 10 points, mine's probably gonna go up 10 points too, but you're still gonna have that gap towards not gonna be the same score. Mm -hmm. So what are those scores? What's kind of good, a good range of numbers when, uh, what's a number that if you see you should be like, oh, okay, I need to do something about that. Honestly, everybody go for 800. That's not a fair goal for a lot of people because they've Mm -hmm. had some challenges in the past, so don't get frustrated if you can't get there. But the higher the score is going to get you better deals on stuff. But if you are at a 680, you're kind of right in the middle. So it's it's good. It's not great. It's not bad. But you are right on the threshold too. So if you do some good stuff, we can push that score up pretty quick. Or if we talk about why you have a 680, because a lot of it's just well, but common sense tells me to do this. I'm like, well, the credit scores aren't common sense. They're an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And so you're assuming you know what that is, and they're not disclosed. So no one really knows what they are. We just have better guesses than most people because we do so much with them that we know if we do this, here's what happens to your score. We want to see people really 720 and higher. On mortgage lending, that's where you get better deals. 720, 740, 760, then they kind of stop counting. Uh, but if you get under 720, you have rates and mortgage insurance get more expensive. And if you get under 680, it really starts to get more expensive. Um, so it's a sliding scale, but really the higher the better. And if you see anything in the lower 600s, again, don't beat yourself up. You just don't know what the rules are. There's so mm-hmm. many people that have good overall histories. They have just a couple things holding them back. And once we go through that, they're just like, wait a minute. Why did no one ever tell me that? Well, most people don't understand what the rules are. And the companies aren't good at explaining them because they don't want you to know. Yeah. We just go the extra mile, and we've done it long enough. We can shed light on how that works. Mm-hmm. So what? So somebody that's at an 800 or a good number, what, what's kind of the, the picture that you'd see there? What's their situation yeah. kind of generally look like? at least having three, four, five open and active accounts. And so I have people who have their mortgages paid off, which that's a pretty small percentage of the population. But I would suggest they have a home equity line of credit. So they have no mortgage, but a home equity line of credit is a mortgage, and you only pay interest if you draw money on it. So it's basically like a credit card tied to your house. So credit card rates are 20-some percent, and a home equity line of credit's at, call it 5%. So it's a massive difference in rates. So if you ever want, you know, a home project, we use ours to pay for when we had hospital bills from having a kid. It's easy access to funds at a much lower rate, but it's tied to your house. That's why it's lower. It's secured against the house. But you can have that open and active mortgage, even if you don't need it, just to help your credit score. And we have a lot of older 
people that dealt in cash their whole life. They don't have a mortgage. They don't have car loans. They don't believe in credit cards. So you could have somebody very well-to-do financially mm-hmm. that has a horrible credit score. And that's not a fair depiction of the risk, but the computer doesn't know any better. Yep. And so the exact opposite is where you know, you'll hear people, it's like, it's just not fair. I've had late payments and no one will give me a chance. Like, well, you got yourself into a hole. There's ways to get out, but you have to play the game a little bit and take a couple baby steps and then we can take some regular steps and then we can start to run. So there's, there's examples of how credit is not a fair system and everything else, but well, such is life. I mean, you just have to know what the rules are and that's where having partners in life, having a good financial advisor, a good insurance agent, a good realtor, good mortgage person, you know, anything comes up. I mean, a good car salesman, you got somebody who actually help you buy a car and not sell you is so valuable compared Mm -hmm. to somebody who's just going to try to sell you the deal of the day. So they make a paycheck. We want to be a partner on the financial side, so that way people have a resource. They're not afraid to ask. So many people are just embarrassed to ask, or it's overwhelming. And you just got to get with somebody who will give it to you a piece at a time. And that way you have the ability to learn and not get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, so we covered some good stuff there. Anything else for advice-wise for like a first-time, looking to become a first-time homeowner? Or is that kind of the biggest, get your credit score up, start early? Yep. I mean, getting an idea of what you want. So as you're in a rental, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people just want to make that jump. And when they go to the agent or they go to anybody saying, hey, I want to buy a house, they start looking at everything. Get your realistic list down. I mean, there's things like absolutely not. I've got to be within 20 minutes work or whatever that number is. I've got to have a garage or no, I don't care about a garage. Or, you know, if you can do a two bedroom house, great. But if you're going to say you've got one kid and you're just married you're going to get a two-bedroom house. Well, are you going to plan to have a second kid? Because that house can get small really fast. I don't want to see people buy too big a house, but you know, if you're married with a kid and you buy a two-bedroom house, the odds are you're buying too small. So we want to stay within budget, but I don't want to see you buy and sell houses every couple of years. You're not making the appreciation and the real true benefit of being a homeowner. Being a homeowner, you want to buy a house you're going to stay in, in my opinion, at least four or five years. Ideally, you're buying a house that's going to be six, seven, eight years or more. First house is shorter, of course, and you'll stay longer typically in second and third house. But mm-hmm. if you can buy a house you stay in, it's better to spend a little more and buy a little bit bigger house, typically, than it is to say, hey, I'm just going to buy on the cheap this time. I'll sell it and buy in two years and upgrade. It costs money every time you touch that house, buying and selling. So we don't want to see you spend a lot of money to cycle a house in two years. The system's not designed for you to have a lot of appreciation. You may get lucky, but that's mm-hmm. that's that's more of a, a luck than it is standard issue. Awesome. Um, so I know every now and then you mention stuff for people that uh, already own a house um, or, you know, further down the line than somebody like me. What are some things out there that people that already own a house or maybe could make the situation better that's out there that they might not know about um it's like anything so you did something the first time you got your mortgage you know whatever it was in the mortgage case you may have done a click me buy me mortgage or you had a loan officer that was very nice but you never understood it and the more you understood it it's like i wish i would have you married the house that doesn't mean you married the mortgage so the mortgage you can refinance really anytime you want now we want it to make sense but I live in an older neighborhood and people have a really good rate on a small amount of money because they've been there a while, but they want to 
they want to do a big overhaul of their kitchen and their garage, let's say. Just because you have a really good rate on a small amount of money doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to use that home's equity and refinance the first mortgage or get a home equity and see how the money makes sense to do the remodel because you're probably not going to have cash to pay for it all. If you do, it's great. Um, but we want to see overall where your money's at. So if you've accrued some credit card debt because of life and you've got the mortgage and you've got some projects that need done or you need you know heating and cooling systems not working well, that's where refinance can come into play. And sometimes you want to leave your first mortgage alone because it's good. Other times you can just pay that off, take some extra money to do the projects. So mm -hmm. that, again, there's no right or wrong. So re, what exactly does that, the steps of refinancing, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. I always hear that term, but I'm not sure I fully understand it. Yep. So it's basically the exact same thing as a purchase. And so the purchase, you're just acquiring the house. The refinance, you already have it. But either way, you're doing a loan on it. And then you're doing a loan mm. for X amount of dollars. And loans are based upon the borrower stuff. So your income, your assets, your credit. It's also based on the property. So if the house is a $100,000 house, you're probably not going to borrow a hundred or more on it. There are those loans available, but again, that's not normal. Are we going to have your loan will be a little bit less than what the house is. And so let's say you owe 60 on a hundred thousand dollar house cause you already own it and you have some projects to do 20 or $30,000. Well, that's fine. 60 plus 20 or 30, you still have equity in the property cause it's worth a hundred ish. So you can borrow that money out if you want to. And so we look at, a home equity loan, which means you'd have a second loan. So you leave your first and you get a second. Those are cheaper to do in cost, but they're higher in interest rates and slightly higher in payments. Some people like that, that's fine. Other times we refinance the first mortgage, so we pay it off and then take the extra money so you can do that over 30 years and make the payment more palatable or 25 years or 20 years. You can pick the terms. We just wanna make sure that monthly payment is correct first. So whatever you do, we want to make sure it's comfortable that you're not going to love a 15-year mortgage because the rate's low, but the payment's just not fair to make. Mm -hmm. It's going to strap you every single month. So it doesn't matter how pretty it looks if you can't make the payment. Yep. So that, so that initial mortgage or loan, that get, disappears or gets mm -hmm. paid off? Okay. Yep. And then you're, then you're just fully transferred over to the new Correct. setup, which, okay. It's kind of like when you trade in a car. So... You take your car in, you owe five grand on it. You're going to buy a $20,000 car. They say, okay, well, we'll give you five grand. So they're going to pay off your car. You still buy the new mm. car. Okay. Right now, cars are worth 10 grand and you only owe five. Well, now you've got 5,000 to go towards your new car. So they're going to take the old car. They're going to pay that off. Okay, and any yep. money that's left over, they're going to apply towards that new car payment. Basically the same thing on the mortgage. Awesome. Um, and then we touched a little bit, but so home improvements, uh, that's another topic you bring up quite a bit. So say people are like, oh yeah, I really want to do this to my house. You know, they don't have the, that money up front. Uh, so what are some options there if people want to improve their house and then maybe if, if what's the best ways to do that while improving, I guess the value of your house as well. You bet. And that's a mix. And so. The first question I ask everybody, are you doing this to fix it up and sell it? Or are you doing this to fix it up and stay there? So if you're going to sell it, we want to bring in somebody on a real estate side to say, okay, well, if you do these things, it's going to cost you $10,000. How does that affect what it's worth to sell? Sometimes it's just maintenance that's necessary to be done. Other times it's like, well, 
you got this shiny kitchen now. You put 10 in, you can probably sell it for 12 or 15 more. So you have more equity because people are that fond of it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do it for selling, there's a grain of salt in there. Don't do what you like. You want to do what the buyers are going to like. So what's not necessarily trendy, but what is selling well and what is neutral? Because if you do blue countertops because you saw a friend who had it, how many buyers do you know that are going to like blue countertops? That agent is a good partner at that point to help keep you in check to make that very neutral for as many buyers to be interested as possible. But then you have the exact opposite if it's for you. So my wife and I redid our kitchen and we overspent on our countertop. I put my foot down. I said, I'm not paying for that. And of course, then I paid for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted white marble, which is extremely pretty. We have an old house. I've wanted it for years. There is quartz, which is more, and it's more trendy right now, but quartz is like ground up and compressed stone. So there's no gaps in it. So it doesn't stain. Oh, okay. Well, the white marble is a natural stone and it has mm. pores in it. And so if you have a party and somebody sets a wine glass down, I would have gone from a white countertop to a pink countertop. My mar- marble is a little cheaper. I want the marble. And then once they told me that, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, we have people drink red wine at our house frequent enough that I'm going to mm-hmm. have a pink countertop. So we chose to spend an extra $1,000 to get the quartz that looked like what I wanted on the marble. Because the quartz, you can let the wine sit there all night, and in Hmm. the morning, it'll wipe right up. It's like, well, I don't want to spend a lot of money on countertops to ruin it at the first party. So when you do things for your own use, what's going to wear well? You know, if you got kids or if you're getting older and want lower thresholds or, you know, whatever the case may be, you may spend $15,000 on a project, but it only improved the house by $10,000. So you can spend money on your house. It's your house. If you like it and you can afford it and you budget for it, do what you want. But that's the exact opposite answer than if you're going to spend money to try and sell it soon. So you just got to be careful how you're spending your money so you're not wasting something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but home equity stuff is fantastic. I mean, I, I love doing home equity loans for people that are getting ready to sell because they want to sell and not do these projects. The problem is you have buyers who don't want the projects either mm-hmm. or they don't have the money to do the project. So getting the house to a certain level of completeness to where a buyer can see themselves in it and they can paint and make it their own, but it doesn't have larger project issues because first time, second time buyers don't always have a lot of extra. They have enough to get in. They just don't have project money. Yep. And so as a seller, you tend to have more value by having the house move in ready, shiny, looking good. And then you get more money for the house or it sits on the market less time. Mm-hmm. So there, there's pros and cons, but make the house your own or make it ready to sell for top dollar, least amount of headache. Those home equity loans can do that very, very well. And they can consolidate debt. So if you do get into a rut and you have credit card debt, you can use your home's equity to dig out of that debt and have it all go away. Okay. And you were saying that home equity, so that's just leveraging against the value of your property that you own? Correct. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Uh, so I know another thing that you bring up a lot is, you know, you um, are very involved with like the realtor side of there when, when realtors are 
um, working with you. You guys work very closely. I know you have your own uh, realtor license yep. as well, right? Yep, I carry my license. I don't use just, it. I just have it so I can speak freely. But it's a big okay. partnership between the lender and the realtor. Mm-hmm. I always joke with my agents, like, you have the fun side. I have the nervous budget side. Mm-hmm. And so if people can get over the nervousness and have the budget match, the fun side is that much more fun and effective because you're not going to lose the house because you're nervous about the payment. So we want to have a good balance. So when you do find the right house, you don't hesitate mm-hmm. and then miss it because you weren't comfortable with the numbers. Yeah. So lately, I'm sure that's been a big thing. Yeah. Like, my it's, buddy bought a house year year and a half ago or something, and he could barely even get a tour of any houses. Yep. I think the one he's in now he got to, but yeah, it was just like posted three hours later, it was gone. Yeah. There's so many changes in markets, but the last three years has been knee-jerk better get out there fast and make a decision even faster. Mm-hmm. And I don't buy stuff that way. I mean, I've been looking for a truck for a long time, nine months. I have a hard time spending big amounts of money until I'm ready and I find what I want. So if we can prep ahead of time so you know where the budgets are at, then when you do find that house, you're comfortable pulling the trigger fast, uh, but even not in this market. I mean, it's just there's always something to where life throws a challenge at you right when you want to do something. So mm-hmm. if we know where your budget is and you're as comfortable as can be, then the surprises that life throws are not going to deter you from whatever that goal is. You know, buying a new house, adding a kid, getting married, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> maybe to end it off here, give you a chance, kind of maybe to s- sell yourself a little. I know uh, the the realtor in our networking group always says, "Hey, it's." having a good lender really helps the process so compare comparing say how you guys operate to you know just going to a bank or what i'm guessing is a little more just plug and play not too much uh going into it what are what are the key differences um and the the benefits that would make somebody want to team up with you guys rather than just going to the bank they already you know just have an account or something simple with. Yep, and that's normally where we have our uh, free second opinion come into play because people go where they're used to first unless they get a referral from the agent or a referral from a friend. That's where we get most of our businesses, referrals. But when everybody deals with us, when we do those second opinions, the whole design is, has someone else walked you through this? And not that banks do bad loans. They have good loans too. They're typically just more limited. And so when you have any institution that does a variety of things, auto loans, checking accounts, annuities, investments, insurance, mortgage loans, they can't be experts in each of those fields. They can be good at them, mm-hmm. but they typically have a couple items available in each area because it's not fair for them to be able to offer everything everywhere. They wouldn't be able to do it. So they have to be kind of jack of all trades, and it's not bad. What we really focus on is making sure that everybody gets that education and you don't look back when you're done and go, well, I wish somebody would have told me that. We'll take the liberties when we ask you questions of what your goals are. We look at your situation and show you how do we improve that. We can squeeze as much benefit out as possible while not adding stress to the system. But if anybody has questions and they just aren't getting the right answers or you know, somebody's very short with an answer and it's just option A, as we all know, there's there's always more than one option. And mm-hmm. if you're not getting that presented to you or having questions asked to narrow down what's appropriate, that's our bread and butter. I mean, we just we want to make sure that 
we keep it smooth and as simple as possible, but this system is not designed to be simple. It's designed to be thorough and effective. And if you like to ask questions and make sure you're getting a good bang for your buck and you're financially stable and confident, that's our definition of success. Technically, we do the mortgage. But I look at being six and 12 months after closing as financially confident and happy with what you got. If you are there after you move in that house, mm-hmm. you did everything as best you could. And that's not the same goal as a lot of places. We want you to make sure that you're buying something you're going to be very comfortable with and happy with the house. But that budget is key. I'm, I'm a firm believer that money doesn't make you happy, but it sure can cause problems. Mm-hmm. So we want to check all the boxes we can so when you move, happy life, enjoy it. And life's going to throw you challenges, but we'll still be here after closing. So when those things come up, we can help mitigate whatever's there, give you good connections for whatever the answers may be. We're just here. We're not here just do the mortgage. We're here well before and we're here well after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's well, something I'm hoping people take away from this episode. It's just, yeah, there's a lot of options out there and uh, but there's people out there that want to help and help you find the best option. Exactly. Uh, so I guess we'll end it with red carpet time. How can people get a hold of you or your team uh, if they're looking to get a mortgage, refinance, all, all that jazz? You bet. So website's teamchedester.com. It's C-H-E-D-E-S-T-E-R.com. My phone number's 515-229-6564. Look us up. There's a lot of good Google reviews out there, and there's a lot of good mortgage lenders. And this goes for every industry. So find somebody in your area. Ask for referrals from people you know. And if you're in the state of Iowa, and especially in the Polk County area, we do a lot of central, but we do all throughout Iowa. We would love to help. And if nothing else, just answer questions and you decide who you like, who you trust and who you want to work with. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely suggest people go check you out. You guys put out a lot of awesome, just short clips that are very informative. Um, so everybody yep, go check out team Chedister. Uh, appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy man. Glad we could find a time that works. Uh, I feel like we put together something that definitely give a lot of people information that's, you know, not well known unless you, go to school for it or have already been through the process so you bet thanks for having me that wraps it up for today's episode of the shale solutions podcast i highly recommend you guys go check out charlie and his team at midwest family lending charlie definitely knows his stuff i know we i know as a fact i could have gone on for probably hours picking his brain about this stuff he really knows the ins and outs of the industry and the best uh, solutions for you if you want to learn more about me and my business, you can find me at Austin Shadel, S-H-A-D-L-E, or Shadel Solutions on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram, and I look forward to sharing the next episode.